Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hansom. Before we get stuck into today's topic, I just want to apologise for any terrible pronunciations that happen during this. I am trying my best, uh, but I know that it may go horribly, horribly wrong. So please bear with me. If you haven't stumbled across one of the many popular Shensha Chinese dramas on your favourite streaming service, we might have to ask you if you've been living under a rock. Shows like The Untamed have become global internet sensations, and we have to admit that at least two out of three of us were swept away in its wake. Picking up on many epic fantasy tropes of Western literature, Shen Xia also uses Chinese folklore and traditional religious practices to create its own blend of fantastical elements. In today's episode, we are joined by debut author Mie Tsai who is further mixing the two fantasy traditions, throwing in elves and an urban fantasy setting among ghosts and curses and cultivators. We are excited to ask Mia more about Shen Xiao and blending different cultural tropes into one epic story. And hopefully you'll also get someone who can pronounce it a little bit better than I can. <laughs> so Mia, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi, I'm Mia Tsai, and I am the author of Bitter Medicine, which is coming out March 14th of this year from Tachyon Publications. Yes, and we're big fans of Tachyon because they they tend to like to publish, uh, you know, some interesting stuff, just a bit bit more unique than uh, (laughs) the everyday fare we get elsewhere. But so for those of us who, for those listeners who aren't familiar with Shensha. Can you explain some of its most iconic elements, you know, and which elements did you really want to weave into your story when you started? Sure. So before we talk about Shensha, we first have to talk about Wuxia, which is the umbrella under which all these other subgenres live. So Wuxia is um, a genre where that it's very old in China and other East Asian and Southeast Asian countries because of the influence of China. But essentially, they are stories of wandering martial artists or um, perhaps the better word for this, the better translation is wandering knights errant in a martial world. And um, their goals are to, um, you know, uphold their honor or um, further their sect or their clan's purposes. And um, they get into all sorts of adventures. So with Xianxia, um, that is broken down further into stories of immortals. So if you look at the word Xianxia, it's actually two words in Chinese. Xian means um, immortals. So you can think of these as supernatural beings that have achieved either longevity or immortality. And then Xia, which is the the wandering knight errant uh, deal. Um so Xianxia novels and dramas, which are super, super popular now and have only been growing in popularity, will have Chinese mythological elements and classic magics like flying or very complicated techniques based on Chinese medicine and martial arts. But the focus remains on immortals like fairies and demons and um, beings that have achieved 
immortality or longevity through careful cultivation of their discipline. And I think cultivation is such a terrible word to describe what the um, martial artists and these magicians and wizards or what have you do, um, because it makes it sound like they're gardening, but it is intense study in their discipline. It's, it's really funny you mentioned that because I remember when I first started watching these things and like, they're all talking about cultivators and cultivation. And I'm like, what on earth is going on? Like, what is this? <laughs> it was just, what? Right. And it's, it's not the greatest translation, but it is essentially their deep study. So in order to better themselves, in order to gain the energy needed to become immortals or to become more powerful in their discipline, they have to do daily study. They meditate, they um, train against other practitioners of the art and you can cultivate just about anything. Um, one of the classic figures in Chinese mythology is the monkey king who started, uh, who was born of a rock that had cultivated enough energy to split open and birth the monkey king. I'm, I mean, I'm a little curious about how a rock studies. So the rock was actually situated in, um, it had really good real estate. Okay, it was stuck precisely in a spot between, I think, heaven and earth, where the energies falling from heaven and coming up from earth would be absorbed by the rock. And eventually the rock became magical and it spat out the monkey king. That is very cool. I, I love like all these like different mythologies. They're so interesting. But you, you mentioned that, you know, these kinds of Chinese dramas have just exploded in the West. And, you know, I... Anyone who is a regular listener to this show will know that Lucy and I are big fans of The Untamed and she's watching Word of Yeah. <laughs> she got me to also watch Word of Honor and uh, oh, there's so many of these ones that Lucy watches that I don't know where she finds the time. And <clears throat> Yes, tell me your secrets. I did not watch 100 episodes of Evernight. I did not do that. <laughs> I, I still don't understand what happened to my life. It's very easy to binge these guys because they're so good at the cliffhanger. Yes. You think, okay, I'm at the end of the episode and then they introduce a new element and you're like, no, I have to watch the next one, but it's four in the morning. Oh, I know. And also because there's so many intricate plot lines and you're like, but I'm invested in, in all of those ones. And, you know, just like, you know, if you get one that you're like slightly less invested in, you know, they then have a cliffhanger of the one that you are invested in. Right. You're like, okay, well, I clearly have to watch the next episode now. Exactly. So I actually wanted to clarify a little more about Chinese fantasy because Xinxia is really specifically about the immortals and the magics that are inherent to them that are like, you know, the Chinese medicine and the martial arts. Um, shows like The Untamed are probably better set under the umbrella of uh, a different subgenre, like a sub-subgenre called Xuanhuan. I think that is correct. Xuanhuan, which is basically the melding of Eastern and Western fantasies. So um, technically, you could say Love Between Fairy and Devil, which is a show that I'm watching right now. I would classify it as both Xianxia and Xuanhuan. Because these magic systems are not based on um, Taoism or traditional Chinese medicine or anything that's familiar, like in a folkloric way to Chinese people. Um, I'm afraid I own a Love Between Fairy and Devil uh, t-shirt. <laughs> you do? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, my friend uh, got an artist to design it and then got two T-shirts printed. So because we're very sad like that and we've now got matching T-shirts. You know, if you visit my Tumblr, it's basically half fairy and devil memes. Like the, the funniest memes I could find on Tumblr and I have to hit reblog because the show is ridiculous. It is. It is. But it's also glorious. And yeah, I'm not going to derail the episode, but yeah. But why do you think that there has been this explosion of like popularity of Chinese dramas and, and fantasies in the West? Because it, it feels sort of like it all of a sudden, and maybe it's just, you know, my perspective, I, I just wasn't exposed to it, but it feels like all of a sudden everyone knows about them. Everyone's watched them. Everyone's talking about the same things. So this is absolutely just conjecture on my part, but I'm going to blame Korean dramas first. So we had the K-pop explosion and Korean dramas started showing up on streaming services here in the U.S. I remember it had to be at least eight or nine years ago watching Coffee Prince on Hulu, which was very exciting. And then some Taiwanese dramas, contemporary dramas were making their way over. And now, um, I guess like the next thing was, well, what can we do? We can do all these costume dramas. We can do historical dramas and historical K-dramas are really, really popular also. And then after the historical dramas, then you get the fantasy dramas. And now they're just really accessible. So you can just turn on your TV or your streaming service. And there it is, you know, the latest uh, martial arts drama from China. Um, so what do you think it is about um, the Xenxia genre in particular that has such a universal appeal? This is something I've talked to my husband about, and we've kind of turned this subject over because um, I did not think growing up here in the U.S. that Chinese dramas, especially Xenxia type, would be like the hot commodity right now. It is a little odd to walk into like the Barnes & Noble and see MDZS for example, no, MXTX, sorry, Uh, just on sale there. But I think, you know, aside from these gorgeous actors that they've got, both men and women, and the costumes, which are fabulous, I'm sure a lot of people watch for the costuming and the sets. I think the slow burn between the characters, whether it's romantic or a friendship that's developing, is really appealing to people. There is, in um, both K-dramas and C-dramas, less overt sexuality. And I think um, American audiences find that refreshing. We have so many um, supernatural dramas, and I'm not just citing the show Supernatural, but we have so many dramas in the U.S. where, you know, the chemistry between the two leads is really necessary. um, And the procedural is king here. Um, and you get like almost the same episode like format for many seasons and it's never, and it's like a, will they, won't they kind of thing with these leads. And it can be very overt in the sexuality and, um, in Wuxia and Xiaxia shows, that's not always the case. It's very noble in a way. I like to, um, I like to joke and say that Wuxia and Xiaxia are really close to Regency romance. So like the touch of his hand is suddenly a huge deal, right? And in contemporary American shows, that's not a big deal at all. So I think that there is a bit of that draw also, especially for romance-centered Shansha dramas. It's really interesting that you mentioned the slow burn and 
just thinking about how, you know, we're constantly told about people's short attention spans and you got to get to action, action, action. And then we're seeing people actually drawn to stories that have a lot, you know, they just focus more on the tension and the slow build. So it feels like maybe there's a reaction against this kind of just go action all the time and, you know, supposedly short attention spans. We're flicking through TikToks constantly getting like a hit of something. And yet at the same time, we're seeking out something much slower. I just, I don't really have anything to say about that other than that's interesting, but I I thought it was worth pointing out. Maybe that's just me. (laughs) I think that's a really legitimate observation. Um, But these dramas, you know, are really, the way that they're structured goes right back to Chinese epics where the characters are the main focus and they get into a lot of hijinks. It's hijinks after hijinks. Um, And the hijinks change and the characters grow very slowly. And because we're really invested in these characters, we are along for the ride. Would you say then that the that the web novel format is the kind of evolution of the epic? It's the 21st century version. I think if you look at it in a certain way, it can be considered that uh, considered such. I also think of the web novel as a spin-off of things like fan fiction um, and you know, people who have wanted to write their stories, um, being able to just do whatever online, which can be very exciting. Like that's totally the trend right now is to hunt for the next huge web novel and then turn it into a TV series. Would you describe Bitter Medicine as a a romance tale? Because it kind of felt to me you had quite a bit of the will they won't they going on, um, which you were talking about in the Chinese shows just a moment ago. I think, you know, when I first wrote it, I definitely concepted it as a romance. And after rounds of feedback, we, the royal we, you know, I shifted it more into the fantastical realm because that was interesting and, you know, something that other people hadn't done yet or had been doing, but hadn't been picked up by traditional publishing. So, what challenges did you find to working magic and mythology into a romance tale? I mean, does it kind of up the stakes and make the romance more engaging and, you know, the conflict greater or are there other challenges and other drawbacks to it? You know, I have read so much urban fantasy in my life that it didn't seem like much of a challenge at all to have magic just be um, part and parcel of the environment. So I think these characters view magic as a very much an everyday thing, even if the rest of the world doesn't know magic exists or only tangentially encounters magic. So with that um, foundation laid out for me, I felt Bitter Medicine was a, a continuation of that sort of world building. And with regards to the world building in Bitter Medicine, I really wanted it to reflect the way our world works in a sense that we have a bunch of different cultures existing at the same time together and they may contradict each other, but that doesn't mean that they're in conflict with each other. So there was really only one cardinal rule for the world building in bitter medicine. And that, that rule was every single culture and magic is legitimate. 
Ah, so it's not just... That's quite interesting because like you say, with a lot of fantasy romance, you do have a very sort of, you know, normal background magic. There's age, There's quite a few agencies that seem to be quite popular or, or sort of associations and things. But I did like how you were like, yeah, as you say, it's not just your magic rules, it's the other ones as well. So is that kind of what you felt you brought to the, the fantasy romance? Is that... What elements of your novel do you really went? Did you really go right? That's completely different to what is already out there. For sure, the magical calligraphy aspect. I haven't seen anybody else with a magic scribe just yet, and that was beautiful. I love that. I love. Oh, thank you. So, it was such detail. Sorry, I, I interrupted you there, but it was yeah, it was just such a wonderful idea of how magic works and the words and the brush and the ink and the paper all combined to it. Yeah, that that was a mix of, you know, what kind of magic can somebody like Elle perform as a calligrapher? And what is the nature of written Chinese that can create this magic? Because written Chinese is pictorial and they are just, you know, the characters are made of smaller characters that all represent different things. And so by shuffling them around, you can create new words or you can have different effects um, I didn't want any of the magic in the book to be a hard magic. So we're definitely not doing like D&D style uh, recipes and there is always a cost. There is no cost to magic. Magic just exists. All magics are legitimate and you can do what you want with your magic. If you can think it, then it's real. Oh, that's really interesting because, you know, one of the questions we um, end up asking uh, when we're doing, you know, episodes on magic systems, is that uh, we always say, oh, well, there's uh, the need for a a limitation, you know, that that the the intrinsic cost to using magic, because if there isn't a limitation or a cost, then um, you know, you lose tension because magic can. It's like you know, the eagles flying the ring to Mount Doom, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, so, how did you go about, you know, if that's the case with your magic system, you know, how did you keep in mind that? the potential kind of loss of tension. I didn't actually think about that. I just like a softer, to use like craft words to describe this, a softer magic system where there aren't rules per se. Um, the same, the rules that bind everybody living in the world are the same rules that bind the magic users of the world. Um, and magic is such an everyday occurrence that people don't really think of it as something that is special. Um, I guess if I had to make an analogy, like the US is very car driven. I wish we had better public transportation, but we don't. Uh, And if you were a person from like a time traveler and you arrived here and you saw all these cars and people driving the cars all the time, you would think, oh my gosh, I would never stop driving this car. What is the cost to driving this car? Meanwhile, driving the car is very normal and mundane to us. So we don't really think about it. You know, we got to gas up the car and we have to maintain the car and, you know, drive safely. And that's about it. If you go somewhere, we're just going to use the car. It's not any other, like, we don't think of it as, uh, let me get into this magical horseless vehicle and, you know, do the thing that costs me the money so I can go to a far off place in a very fast, you know, in a fast manner. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Yeah, no, I was just going to say that's a really good analogy, actually. And I think maybe it's because we, um, you know, we so often see magic presented as, you know, exclusive 
I suppose it's not just writers. It's like it appears in in not just novels. It appears in a lot of media. But magic is often used to highlight some kind of discrimination or status change. Um, so it's actually really refreshing to to see magic and to look at a magic system that is it doesn't actually hinge on the have and the have nots. So when I was doing when I was creating the world when I was world building for bitter medicine, I wanted it to reflect more of its folkloric roots. Um, I'm Taiwanese and for like compared to the other East Asians, we are incredibly superstitious. Like there are so many taboos that um, I swear some of us just make up so that, so that um, because we can, but there are so many taboos in society that are completely based on belief and superstition. And that is a sort of magic that appeals to me and everyday magic, right? There is a sense of the unknown and there is that sense in other cultures too um, that have a really deep folkloric element. And that is um, essentially every single culture. We all have a deep folkloric element. There is um, a je ne sais quoi, an unanswerable, undefinable quality about folklore that helped guide my soft magic rules. The mysticism and the wonder of folklore is for me really present in my everyday life, which is not something I find is present in Western life. Everything here in the West has been broken down and analyzed and it's really scientific. So it doesn't surprise me to see things like Dungeons and Dragons come up with rules on, on how to do magic. And here is what you're allowed to do. Here's what you're not allowed to do. Here's the cost and you can't have too much power. And that's not really the way we think about things over in my other culture, because, you know, I am, I'm both Taiwanese and American and, um, I really, really just wanted to preserve that aspect of magic because that is really special to me. So you asked, what can like, what does bitter medicine bring to the table that others don't? Um, I haven't read every single fantasy book out there, so I can't say that I'm doing something that nobody else has ever done. But I do think that just having magic be as common as rain and groundwater is different. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I say, when I read it, it was, yeah, very different to a lot of things. And I think every fantasy, urban fantasy novel, um, particularly the romance, although the romance is standard, the way it's presented is is always very different. And I was interested that you had an elf in it, but not a kind of traditional elf that, you know, like you were saying with Dungeon and, Dungeons and Dragons, he, he seemed a bit more nuanced. So could you perhaps talk us through um, how your elf character came into being, uh, what you sort of thought about when creating him, what tropes you wanted to avoid, all that kind of stuff? I have to admit something, and I don't know if you guys want to air this because I might get my fantasy card revoked, but I don't like elves. <laughs> and that is, I did, and they're pretty much one and all not great people. So when building the world for bitter medicine, like I said, I wanted to remain close to folklore and a lot of elvish folklore 
um, traces its lineage back to Northern European stories, where elves are one and all really bad for humans, right? They are tricksters. They are always going to backstab you and you don't want elves in your life. And I thought, why not go with those instead? Because the elves that inhabit my world are definitely not Tolkien elves. They are not D&D elves. Have you read Lords and Ladies by Terry Pratchett? Because I liked his elves. You know, my elves are much closer to Pratchett elves than uh, Tolkien elves, for sure. Such bastards. <laughs> <laughs> well, what else are you going to do with your one immortal life other than be beautiful, you know? And so knowing all the stories about the Fae and what they want, a lot of them are avaricious and a lot of them operate on these really fine rules, which is why I think a bureaucracy is perfect for them because now they have all these rules that you have to follow as soon as you step foot into their realm. So I kind of get this anti-elf feeling from you. And like you say, your, your realms are very bureaucratic. So what made you want to write Luke as like the sympathetic protagonist, the one that we're all rooting for? He sort of is the mirror to their realm, you know, to their world and, um, and to their beliefs. So he's raised in that system, though he wasn't born in that system. And um, honestly, I can't really say why he had to be um, a partial elf because spoilers, um, but I needed somebody who could inhabit that world, but also inhabit a human world just to show us, you know, some of the really messed up stuff that happens over there. And when he leaves that world and transitions to a human world and he's able to go back and forth between these two worlds, he himself, who's been so steeped in it, he's definitely the frog in the pot. He doesn't realize what's wrong with the other world, but L, who is more on the human side, is able to, you know, like, have I totally gone off the rails here? <laughs> no, no, it's all making sense because they balance each other out, really, don't they? That's the whole point of a romance. Yes. Um, so we definitely needed a character who was entrenched enough not to see the flaws, but also not so entrenched that they couldn't leave the system or criticize the system. You're mentioning like your like lead characters, the heroes. And I just wanted to come back to this idea of how you were talking about the the main hero of the, oh no, it's been a while. Can I say it again? Shensha, mm-hmm. <laughs> close enough, <laughs> um, as being like a knight errant and someone who is kind of brave, chivalrous, righteous, virtuous. But a lot of, at least the ones that I like, um, and maybe I don't know if they're necessarily Shensha or I'm not even going to try to say the other kind. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I find that I, I'm attracted to a lot of the heroes that are more flawed and a little bit more unlikable. And that seems to not quite fit with this idea of like the hero character being at the center of it as as someone really virtuous and, and wandering and, and trying to make themselves and the world around them a better place. So how does that fit with the genre? 
I think it really depends on your perspective, right? Somebody who is very chivalrous and honorable to one person can be an absolute jackass to somebody else because he is so steeped in his beliefs that he has no choice but to act in a way that harms others, for example. And for him, you know, that's very justifiable because he's following uh, what his master taught him or what his clan believes in. Um, the flawed character is definitely... Um, a tried and true archetype in Chinese literature. Um, if you guys have ever read uh, Condor Heroes or even watched Condor Heroes or like even incidentally heard about Condor Heroes, the main character has several significant flaws that he gets better. He gets better over the course of like four very thick doorstopper books. So <laughs> I think that, oh, and the Monkey King, of course, himself is flawed. He's a trickster. Um, he will do whatever it takes to get to his goal. He will steal, he will lie and cheat. And because, um, for me, because he thumbs his nose at authority, that's why I like him. Um, and a lot of these heroes are people who are behaving badly in service of the greater good, right? So going back to The Untamed, for example, for example, Wei Wuxin is very flawed as a character, but we like him. We want him to succeed. And then the other character in the Untamed is like the foil, right? So he's he's the one who Wei Wuxin reflects off of. So we can see like what you're supposed to get, you know, um, the reality of it and the um, social media face of it. So I think that this is um, something that's also present in Bitter Medicine where Luke is, you know, he's... Um, mysterious and he has a really specific moral code but he has to do things that he doesn't agree with um, in service to the greater good of what his boss tells him to do nice so there's plenty of us to like moon over and um, <laughs> get obsessed. Oh yes, we love a tortured soul, don't we? <laughs> oh yes. So do. Yeah, I mean throw in throw in necromancy and I am I am there. <laughs> There you go. Uh, Lucy's just given you her ideal date. <laughs> I don't know what it is about that, but my other favorite character is Raceline Magia from Dragon. Oh, Ball. I love him so much. Yeah, right? I definitely have a type here. Yes, um, I know me and many other women will fight to the death over who gets to claim Raceline. But it's, it's like the, it's the bad boy with the heart of gold trope. Right. Which is sort of Luke, but I kind of had to tune that because he is, as I like to describe him, 17 anxieties in a bespoke suit. Who is also, you know, has a heart of gold ish, maybe we're not sure. No, that's nice because, you know, that, as you say, that is the trope. Like you, you kind of expect to uncover the heart of gold. But, you know, what if the heart of gold is not quite uh, as sparkly as uh, we kind of come to possibly anticipate from this very recognizable trope. I think that's also why I like, you know, Race Lynn, because actually he's a total shit uh, as well. <laughs> I mean, like anyone who leaves their twin brother to die in a, a whirlpool is <laughs> pretty bad. But that one time he was nice to Boo Boo is what we all hold on to. And I think what was nice about Race Lynn was he knew he could not be redeemed. Um, and I appreciate that in a hero. And I think that's, um, that's a little in Luke also. He's like, I know I have done a lot of bad stuff and I'm not even going to pretend that that's redeemable. Yeah. I mean, it's honest. You own it. 
part of the issue with pitching bitter medicine is that it's got so many things in it. It really does sometimes feel like a kitchen sink kind of book, the junk drawer book. Um, but part of the motivation for writing it initially was representation of mental illness for Asian American women. Um, Asian American women are, I think, if not the highest, very much in the top three of um, parts of the population that um, that are susceptible to depression and suicide. And it's really, really hard to speak up, especially if you are a first or second generation Asian woman. Um, and we have a lot of the baggage with us from our parents and our grandparents. I wanted something that showed how a community can pull together to uplift an Asian woman when she is suffering. Yeah, I think that's a really, I mean, not to, to get all like soppy about it, but that's like, it's a noble thing to want to include in, into your work. And it's, it's really nice to see. And it's not something you see very often in fantasy books, right? Usually, um, usually the big set piece happens, um, the terrible thing happens, and then you don't get to see the aftermath. And I am the kind of writer who likes to get to that breaking point in a chapter, like where it hurts the most, and then I'm going to keep pushing. So this is me going, ow, that hurts a lot. Let me keep going to see if it hurts some more. And then having um, a lot of queer rep in here is um, I'm so excited to see more and more queer rep in science fiction and fantasy. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to us. It's been a real pleasure and, um, you know, for trying to improve our terrible pronunciations as well. <laughs> You're not the only ones who struggle. I struggle sometimes. <laughs> it's hard to flip between English and Chinese. But again, thank you so much for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.